Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello and welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a real rarity around these parts, a part two with my friend, Fat Tony, who released one of my favorite records of last year, Exotica, and he is here to talk about all that and a bunch of other stuff. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is where my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, except this week, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, thank you for all the hard work you do on this show each and every week. And he can get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that you enjoy this podcast that we do, well, several times a week now these days, but uh, let them know. And you can also support the show by uh, subscribing to it and rating it on your platform of choice. Thank you to everyone that gives it a five-star review over there on iTunes. Also, you can uh, uh, head over to patreon.com, patreon.com slash turned out of punk and there is uh, a Patreon page set up that has footnotes and has some other stuff over there. And thank you, thank you, thank you to each and everyone that does do that. Also, uh, speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just don't do it out of your own pocket. And you know what? It's been great. It's allowed me to kind of help cover the costs because... It costs to do a free podcast. Who would have thought it? So thank you, Vans. Okay, on to today's show. Today on the show, Fat Tony is back. Way back at episode 173, Fat Tony was on for an incredible episode. I went back and listened to it. One of my favorite uh, episodes of this thing. And recently, last year, he put out three records, one of which was this fantastic album, Exotica, that I've fallen in love with. And, you know, I didn't really do a top ten of 2020, but this would certainly be on it because I have listened to this thing a lot, a lot since I discovered it. Uh, it's out on Car Park Records, and uh, yeah, it's it's an amazing record. We go all into this in the episodes. I'm not going to repeat it, but it's it's a totally different approach for him that he took with this album. And uh, anyway, as I say, he explains it in this episode, and and that's it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore because this is a uh, a fun uh, conversation that really. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I have any notes. I'm looking over my notes right now, and I don't really see it. But check out Exotica. That's the only note. Um, also, the Mariachi mix. There's a Mariachi remix of the song Gambling Man, which is fantastic. And a great video, too. Anyway, that's it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Fat Tony on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> 
All right, sick. I'm recording. Me too. Oh, Tony, thank you for coming back and walking me through this podcast. Hey, man, I'm a walking YouTube tutorial. You know what I mean? That's what I do. You, you definitely like it's uh it's you know I'm I'm 300 plus episodes in at this point and uh, I'm still learning new tricks and uh, I I really appreciate you coming back because uh, you were you were in the first 200. Yeah, I was early. I was an You're early, early adopter. Yeah, on, back on in the two- only podcast that matters. <laughs> well, I appreciate that, and I think your episode I went back and re-listened is one of the all-time best. Like, there's just so many like legit moments where I popped, I was just like, Oh my gosh, I forgot about this. And yeah. Uh, and, and we went deep, you know, like, I think that was the other thing is, is going into it. Uh, you know, I, you know, you never know how much musical knowledge and, or no uh, punk knowledge, I should say someone has, or how much experience with it they have. And I, I'm shocked a lot, like by people being not as into it as I would have thought. And, and then <laughs> here we are talking about your first show is, is an ERC show. You know, yeah, the first show I ever put too. on, crazy. No, um, man, I think it's fun. The the uh, first time that we talked was really great because it was a lot of nostalgia. Like I really like even before we spoke, I sat down and I and I write down all these old shows that I remembered and these old records that I remembered loving, and it really just like brought me back into that zone because, you know, you you don't really get to talk about this stuff very much, and even at the time when I was like fifteen. 15 16 getting into punk music i didn't have a lot of friends that liked it too so Mm -hmm. i mostly i i had a wide group of friends in person and online that i talked to about different areas of punk so i talked to this one kid john about pop punk stuff i would talk to my friend chris about post-punk i would talk to another person about hardcore and it was great to be on an episode where we could bring all those worlds in together because all of those are really make up who I am as like a punk. You know, I'm not just somebody who was like, I was a fucking anarcho punk or I was into hardcore. I was into all these different things at once. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. Like, that's like my favorite type of person to talk to, like not just for a podcast, but it's just in general is someone who like, who like sees the forest through the trees and is able to like, look at this thing as not just these little micro uh, you know, manifestations of it, but see it as like, and I don't just mean necessarily just even punk, but just like music in general, but seeing it as like one big picture. Yeah. I think that's the good part about not being like brought into punk through a group of friends. Cause I think mm-hmm. a lot of time, if you get into punk through socializing, you might only socialize with a certain type of punk kid. So you're only attuned to that type of punk music or punk culture. But because I was scouring books and the internet and just going to whatever shows were happening that looked interesting, I was kind of taking it in from everywhere without having the judgment placed upon each of those things. Like, like I never had, you know, people telling me that pop punk's whack or people telling me that hardcore is whack. Like I was open to enjoying any and everything. Yeah, it's it's amazing, and you really see that kind of now in I think like the younger, the next generation, the younger generations of kids and their approach to music, where you can kind of get into it that way, and like you know, once again, not just punk, just like all types of music, because you you don't have to you don't have to choose as much. Like there's, it seems like there's a lot more kind of like just sort of like you know uh, picking and choosing. Yeah, and I feel the same way about rap music too. Like. 
around the same time I was as much into old school Houston rap, like Devna Dude, Ghetto Boys, as much as I was into E-40 and Mac Dre, Too Short, as much as I was into 3-6 Mafia or De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest or Mob Deep or Nas. Like I liked everything all at once and I didn't have anybody telling me that that was uncool except for nerds that I'd see on message boards. And I and I feel like social media and the internet and stuff is so different now because when I was on those message boards as a kid, when I logged off, I totally tuned those people out and I feel like you don't have that uh, type of separation now. You know what I mean? Yeah, the yeah. internet, social media, socializing online and offline is all one big thing. So if you're getting pressured for what you like online by somebody, that might drift off into your real life nowadays more than it did back in my day. So I was lucky, man. I feel blessed, honestly. Like even my age, like I'm an old millennial. I'm 32 years old. Maybe I'm a young millennial. I don't know. But anyway, I feel like I, I just came up during such a great time for music and culture and TV and movies and all kind of shit, man. I feel really, really lucky. I think also you're like part of the last, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, almost a decade older than you, I guess. But like, I, I think we're, you know, it's the last generation that still appreciated all this media. Like you really loved it you know now i look at my kids and you know they grow up with streaming everything you know like yeah. all the stuff's available available to them 24 7 so they they like it you know they watch it but i don't think they're invested in it in the same way you are when it's it's harder to come by like you do have to scour to find it i i think this um feeling is something that's come back for me during quarantine especially pretty even before quarantine, when I was making my um, new album, I was really, me and my producer were really going back into all these songs that we loved growing up from all different types of styles of music, from like French pop to rap music to Outkast to Three Six Mafia, just just all kind of music that we love, even classic rock stuff like Neil Young, David Bowie, just all these songs that we love. And that felt really helpful to get us inspired to start writing the album, listening to all these classics. And then we finished making the album and like two months after we finished recording the album, quarantine hit. So now we're all at home and I'm digging back into my hard drive. I'm, I'm watching a lot of music documentaries again. Like that, that old feeling I had when I was young of being eager to really discover music is with me right now and that's one part of 2020 i want to hold on to mm -hmm. yeah no it definitely has been a, a an amazing moment to kind of go back through hard drives and through record collections and just you know rediscover you you know the new record's amazing like i, I really Thank think you. the new album's incredible and uh it's 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 really something that um i don't know, like yet yeah, like you're saying like it feels like you went into it and approached it almost like uh, like a like a uh, like a whole record at once you know like was that the yeah. idea like going in and kind of envisioning this thing as like a completed lp absolutely i mean this is one of the most detail oriented albums that i've ever made this is by far the album i think that i'm most proud of and i worked the hardest on and i've written some of my best songs on going into this album me and my producer goldeneye 
were really cognizant of what it takes to make an album. We didn't want to just make a bunch of songs and then pick and choose what felt right or what fit. We sat down and we talked about this album for a week. And during that week, we wrote the songs, we made the beats, we made a we made a decision before writing the album that it was going to be all storytelling because my past couple records I talked a, a little bit more about myself than I usually do and I wanted to go in another direction on this album and make it all tales of fiction which I actually think was a great challenge as a songwriter to not just crib from your personal life but really try to envision a character and their nuances so when you're writing about them you're doing it in a way that is thorough and is appropriate for their situation and um we mostly just spent our writing sessions talking about the album i was living in uh brooklyn at the time because this was a few months after i did the vice show right which which was shot in brooklyn and me and my partner decided to move from los angeles to brooklyn and we stayed put for a about a year and that worked out perfectly because my producer lives in Jamaica so I knew it would be easier for us to link up in Brooklyn because of the distance he can get a flight there in just a few hours you know what I mean yeah so he came out to Brooklyn we rented a studio at my friend's apartment still tip dove who's also a great producer and an engineer we hired him to engineer the sessions and for a week me and Gold and I just talked about every single song, every single character. If uh, th- if like there was a character that we felt like we needed to do some research on, like in Gambling Man, we actually sat and we watched clips from movies about gamblers. We watched a little documentary about gambling addiction. Just all these little things that might seem tedious, but it absolutely made the writer part of our brains more effective because we had all this material to deal with in our heads when we're writing the stories you know picturing what this character johnny the gambling man is going to dress like where does he live what age is he what does he eat just all these little things just you know worked hand in hand to make an album that is detailed and i think it's been a long time since i made an album this way the the last time that i can remember making an album that was this honed in was smart ass black boy which golden eye also produced and that album also has a bit of storytelling too so in a way i feel like with with this project i'm working with my original producer and i'm working with with some of my original ideas for how albums are made far as storytelling and how thorough you got to be so with with all that said, this project is so fulfilling. I could talk about it for fucking days. <laughs> <laughs> I think with Gambling Man, though, I find like, you know, it's definitely, you know, obviously you're, you're writing something in a character, but there's also, you know, very relatable, I think, being in music, like I, especially like, you know, listing off all those failed projects, um, you know, growing weed, you know, trying an app and just yeah. this idea like, you know, when you're when you're a musician, you know, or when you're you know, like, like, you know, both of us, like doing all sorts of different things in in different media fields, it always feels like you're just casting these lines out there, hoping that one of them like hits and it becomes your career, you know, other than making music. I mean, like, I don't know, that's what it feels like to me, at least. No, no, totally. And I, and I think that that's something I was able to do 
unbeknownst to myself when making this album, I feel like I am telling people more of who I am and my perspective through these characters and through storytelling than if I just told you about real life incidents. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And 100%. I and I and I think you're absolutely right. Like us as artists, as entertainers, as whatever you want to call us, we are always pushing out the next thing and that drive that the next thing is going to be your best work or your most popular work or whatever gets you off that drive is what keeps us making stuff like definitely making this album we had it in our heads yo we're making our best work ever and i think having that fueling us really pushes you to give it your all like you know some of those writing sessions we were in there for like 12 hours you know like yeah time is meaningless all this other shit that we worry about is meaningless when you're focused and you're locked in on a project and that doesn't happen with with every project you know there are some projects that do feel tedious or like more of a chore or feel like you don't think it's going to work out like there are there are definitely times when i have you know collaborated with somebody and during the session i'm thinking Man, this song ain't going nowhere. We need to <laughs> we need to reel it back in because this ain't it. And I'm and I'm cool with that too. I feel like more people should be open to um throwing away their work, you know, if 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 it doesn't fit. Like don't try to force it, you know? Yeah, no, hundred percent. Like I, I really I think uh back to what you're saying about you know, having honesty in characters, I find that so much so like you're you're able to talk about emotions in a way that I don't know. It just, it feels a lot harder to do when you have to talk about things in the first person. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I think that's why actors are so effective. You know, that was what I had in my mind making this album. Like I tried to approach every song from the perspective of that character. So on feeling groovy, you have the dad who is, lusting after this woman he sees and he's feeling frenzied you know frenzied is a word that i use in the uh, chorus and i tried to match that with my vocal like slightly rhyming off beat sometimes you know sound like i'm breathing heavily like like i wanted all that to be there and not just feel like hollow i wanted it to feel real i wanted it to feel like each song is its own world and i and I think um, it was tough too. It, it was, t- I mean, even outside of t- spending a lot of time writing on this record, we spent a lot of time just recording vocals. Like I re-recorded this record so many times over two weeks just to get the vocal performance right. And um, I think that that's fully what it takes now. And this is kind of the. Um, m- this is kind of the mode that I'm going to be in moving forward, making albums like no more. Will I just make a collection of songs and just pick and choose what fits, you know, I'm going to go into every project with some intentions. I really think that comes across on the record. Like you're saying, like the difference in the, uh, the, 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 uh, the vocal approaches that you have in different songs and like how every character seems to have a slightly different kind of flow to your to what you're saying or, or like, you know, obviously the words are different because they're different experiences. But like, I think that that really does come across on the record. 
Yeah, and I think going out to uh, Jamaica to record the album really inspired us to not be afraid to focus because we had no distractions. First of all, my producer Goldeneye lives out there, right? Mm-hmm. So when I come out there, I'm in his world. I'm on his family's time. When it's time to get his uh, daughter up to go to school, I'm up. When it's time for him to run an errand, I'm running it with him. You know, this is like not the type of recording sessions where we're going out to like the bar afterwards or like we're having friends come and visit us during the session. Everything felt very, very structured. And I think that that was another thing that really added to um, us being able to just dial it in. Like there was one time where I tried to fuck off. I like tried to take a walk. I was like, man, I'm kind of bored. They were mixing something like, man, I'm going to walk to like the store. But our studio was in Stony Hill, which I don't, I don't know, for like lack of a better comparison, it's kind of like the Hollywood Hills. Like it's well, it's well to do people living in big houses up in the hills that's far from any businesses or anything else. You know, people are like paying to be cut off from city life there. Yeah. yeah. And when I try to take a walk to go to the store, it was going to take me like fucking an hour or something just to walk to the corner store. I'm like, man, let me just sit my ass down and just work on something. There is something for me to be doing even while the guys are mixing a record. Let me not even try to give myself an opportunity to fuck off. You know, that's not what I came here for. It's amazing when you kind of like look at music as, you know, like a, a job job and, you know, like something you actually have to put in eight hours a day because like so much of music is just about setting it up so you don't have to do that, you know, and just, yeah. and, and so it's like amazing to kind of go back and do it and just how much more efficient it is when you do. I think it's just something that comes with experience too, because, you know, even I was talking about my album, Smart Ass Black Boy, which is my second album, came out mm-hmm. in 2013, and we recorded it a year prior when I was like 23 going into 24. So during those sessions, we were definitely about having fun. We definitely had friends coming through. We had friends bringing, bringing weed, bringing wine, like we're just hanging out too. But we also had this drive to be conceptual and to be storytellers. And and I think on that album you can hear the hear the fun and that drive to be thorough coming across. But I think on this album when we're able to only focus on that, you just get better results. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think it just it, it you know, like the idea of approaching an album as an album is just I, I just can't imagine doing it another way, you know, like, just like, I, I think you, like you're saying, it's just, it allows you to kind of immerse yourself in it as much as you can. And it's kind of interesting now because so much hype in music is placed upon getting on certain playlists, singles. So when I went to show this album to my label, it, it wasn't like, yo, here are the three songs I think are the singles and, you know, check out the rest of the album at your own leisure. Rather than that approach, I wrote an article where I detailed the origins of this album and I explained what, what each song meant. And I gave them that and I asked them to listen to the album from front to back because I felt that this is the type of project that isn't built for just like having some 
popular songs or some quote unquote bangers, which industry people love to fucking say. <laughs> it's 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 like not an album full of bangers and hits or stuff for your pollen playlist or, or rap caviar or whatever. It is an album that is best experienced and enjoyed as a whole project you have to listen to the full album to really get it you have to look at the art to get it you have to watch the music videos to get it and i think that that approach kind of kind of surprised them i think it kind of surprised a lot of people even friends of mine that i've worked with or friends of mine who are fans of my music they felt that our approach on this album was very very different one friend was like, yo, it almost sounds like this is a side project. And I had to tell him, no, this is an album. We're just so not used to artists doing that right now that it feels foreign when you're pushing the project first as a whole rather than the hot song or two. I think there are like like really catchy songs on this, like some of your catchiest songs uh, on this record too, like chorus-wise and stuff like that. Like it is, you know, I know it's, it's, it's like... Uh, uh, like it, it's 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 catchy in a in a different way even totally agree totally agree and i think that just makes it sweeter that it has that too mm-hmm. man have you ever seen that uh mike judge cartoon it's um tales tales from the t- uh tour bus you ever seen yeah, that absolutely yeah yeah so i was watching the rick james episode and <laughs> one of his band members was telling a story about how back in the day they were humming a song or something and it came to them that they should try to be tuneful they should try to have moments that you can hum or or that you can whistle in all of their songs and right at that moment i decided that i wanted my next album to have that quality too so going into making the tracks for this album me and goldeneye had in in our mind that every single song needed a hummable moment whether that moment came from you know, the kind of cadence that I'm rhyming in or from a certain instrument or a melody or whatever the case is, every song needed to have that. I think that this is my my most musical album, too, because through throughout the record, for the most part, we're playing everything. We're like playing the keys that that become an uh, accordion or a trumpet or whatever on this record. Well, like you're saying, like the, the references that you're kind of going to be it new wave stuff be it be it like um all types of stuff you're referencing in different songs and stuff like that and it feels like it is a a cohesive kind of musical statement was it like was it important to have bun b on the record oh my god are you kidding it's incredible to have bun b on on his album i'm i mean even outside of bun being from texas and being a friend of mine he is such a legendary artist. UGK is my favorite group of all time. And they have been for many years now. Their music is so incredible in how dense it can be and how simple it can be and how soulful it can be. They really run the gamut of all type of emotions throughout their music in a way that I think many of their uh peers didn't do that came out around the same time you know they're not a one-dimensional group they're not just a group that's like gangster rap or whatever term you want to put on it and um getting bunt on it was actually difficult honestly you know first of all 
we are in Jamaica and I get a text from him and he's like, yo, I just saw on Instagram that you're in Jamaica. I'm out here too. And I'm thinking like, whoa, Bun is out here. I'm recording an album. I have to get him on it. Now, at first, I was thinking this was going to be my first album with no features. It was just going to be my my uh, voice throughout the album. But Bun happening to be in the same country that I'm in, I got to hit him up. So I told him to pull up, but he was in Montego Bay and we were in Kingston. And Montego Bay is like four hours away. It is on the other side of the country. But and Bun was also there to celebrate his wife's birthday. So he wasn't there like playing a show or like working. He's doing some family shit. You feel me? Mm-hmm. But rather than let any of that stop us, I'm like, Bun, can I pull up on you and record you for, for my album? He's like, sure, let's make it happen. So I rented an Airbnb. Me and Gold and I packed up a little mobile studio thing and we drove across country for one day to go record Bun. Throughout the day, Bun is like texting us, yo, so so my wife is gonna get a massage and then I'll come pull up. And then he texts us, yo, my wife actually wants to go get a drink right quick, you know, maybe after that. Then it's like, oh, she wants to go walk by the beach when like the sun sets, I'll hit you up after that. And then finally he's like, yo, she's about to take a nap. I'm gonna pull up. <laughs> and and he uh comes to the Airbnb. He's in full vacation mode. He is wearing shorts, he's wearing some flip-flops, he's wearing a little hat and a t-shirt. He is chilling, right? Yeah. yeah. He pulls up. We're like watching TV and he, you know, chats with us for like five or ten minutes. We're just talking about music. Like we just like just out of nowhere, we were watching the uh the uh hip hop show on uh on uh Netflix. And they're talking about Pac and like Biggie. And he's like, yo, you know, I met Biggie, blah, blah, blah. And like telling us stories and shit. <laughs> We're like, oh, okay, cool, cool. Then I'm like, yo, you want to check out the track? He's like, all right, come on. So we go upstairs. He sits on the bed. We start playing the song. And it's the intro song to my uh, new album, What Wake You Up. And while the song's playing, I'm telling him what I want from him. Which basically is I wanted him as the third verse to sum up everything that I'm saying throughout the song. Throughout the song, I'm really talking about gratitude. And I'm talking about it by showing this person's life compared to this person's life. Their ups and downs. To the, from the, from the priest. To the unhappy mother. To the man that's having an affair. To the cop. To the homeless man. just To the rich man. To the man that's missing a leg. Just all these people and their ups and downs. And I wanted him to just straightforward, directly say what the song's about. And I'm telling him this, the song's playing, and the whole time he's staring at his phone typing. He asked me to play the song one more time. He's just in his phone typing, typing, typing. When the song finished playing the second time around, he was like, all right, I'm ready. Got up, laid down the uh, verse. He did it perfectly the first take. We did another take just for safety, but didn't even need to. He nailed it. He not only nailed the recording, but nailed the concept. And I feel like only a songwriter who's been doing it for at least 30 years like him can work like that. Like just through a few sentences and hearing a song twice, he was able to figure out 
what this song needs. Not not just what a good verse would be, but what this song needs. And then he got up and he was like, all right, I got to get back to my wife. We offered him a ride. He was like, no, I'm cool. I'll just walk. And he just walked off with his uh, with his flip flops right into the <laughs> moonlight. And I'm just looking like, damn, that's a fucking legend right there. That is a legend. And I think that's the thing is like UGK is obviously, you know, recognized worldwide, you know, as being this massively important group. But at the same time, you can't really appreciate how important they are to people in Texas until you're in Texas talking to people about them. Yeah, man. And 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 as someone that grew up in Houston, Texas, I luckily was informed about all these great artists since day one. Like from the moment I heard about music, I was being made aware of Scarface and Lil Kiki and Botany Boys and DJ Screw and Lil Flip and Big Mo. All these people were on the radio. They were on our local TV, which which would love to show rap videos any chance that they could. We uh, had a weekend show called Street Flavor that was dedicated to Houston rap videos, and it ran every Sunday. And I watched it probably every week of my life in elementary school. But what's even crazier is me and Goldeneye have a UGK connection. I met Goldeneye back in the 2000s. I probably met him over MySpace in like 2005. And in 2007, he messaged me and said that he was coming to Houston. Now, he lived in Atlanta and he was in a rap group that had a record deal with Warner Brothers. And as part of his deal, he wanted to get their upcoming single mixed by Mike Dean, who is a legendary producer and engineer who is famous for working with Kanye. But before that, he worked with rap a lot, mainly with Zero and Scarface and Big Mello, and he even worked with Selena on her early records, right? Wow, I did not know that. That's wild. Google Google that. That's, yeah. that's uh, the little Fat Tony trivia I'm bringing to the podcast today. <laughs> but he had a session with Mike Dean, so he's flying to Houston. I'm like, all right, let's finally meet and let's hook up. The same week that he's coming to Houston, I'm recording the Love Life EP, which is basically my demo tape. It's my first record ever. And I'm thinking, you know, this this is perfect. I'm having my first sessions. This like, guy that I really respect that I met online is going to come here. We're going to vibe and make some music. I'm living my dream. I'm probably like 20 years old then, maybe 19. And he ends up coming to Houston and then he's like, yo, I got some bad news. My Mike Dean sessions have been canceled. The same week that he came to Houston, Pimp C died. And Pimp C was a good friend of Mike Dean. And while Mike Dean was mourning the pimp, he closed down the studio. So now GoldenEye is in town and he has all this free time. I get my mom, that's, that's, this is how young I am. I get my mom to come pick him up and take us both to the studio, right? Yeah. And when we go to pick him up, it turns out that he's staying at a, at a house that's two streets over from where I grew up. I'm like, oh, that's crazy. I get to the house 
It turns out that his aunt is my little brother's school teacher. And it turns out that his mom's family is from Houston and his mom lives in Houston. So I'm like, wow, we have this neighborhood connection. We have this Houston connection. This is crazy. During that trip, since he had no work with Mike Dean, we just kicked it and just made beats and made songs and just really talked about music a lot. Mostly just like talked about our ideas for where we think rap music is going and the type of records that we'd want to make. And at the end of that trip, he gave me a beat CD and was like, man, let's uh, try to make a project. And over the next few years, we kept making music back and forth. And that turned into my first album, Rabdar Gab. And if it wasn't for Pimp C, very unfortunately passing, he might not have had all that free time that really led to us creating the foundation of my music career. It's amazing how those things happen, right? Like these just like little twists of fate that you're like, wow, if that didn't happen, none of this <laughs> that came after it could have been set up. Yeah, man. I, I mean, it's the kind of shit that's like beautiful, honestly. So to have Bun on this album means, uh, means a lot because of how me and Goldeneye first met somehow via the via pimp seat you know what i mean mm -hmm. and um it just feels like we've come full full uh circle like making this album really feels like i'm on to the next chapter of my life as a songwriter far as the type of work i want to make and the type of themes and concepts that i want to push so it feels really healthy that we get to touch back on where i began at this very moment you know, like, like you're talking about how important, you know, UGK is and all these, there's like this whole scene of, of Houston rap of, of Texas rap, I guess, as well. That's just like, you know, like very regional and this idea of regional scenes and, and, you know, regional kind of manifestations that happens in punk rock. It happens in, in metal as well too, yeah. but it's just so interesting to kind of see we're at an era where that's not going to happen anymore. Like we're at the last era of regional musical identity because it just, isn't going to work that way. Like we just have such a, such access to everything now. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a big bummer, honestly. Like I hate that so many people want to sound like the next person these days. And I, and I think that that's something that's been going on for a while now, but in this era of like streaming and playlist, I think that we have, uh, have just accelerated us becoming this one single sound. And I think it sucks because what made me excited about music coming up is that there were all these regions and eras and styles for me to learn about. Like, it was exciting to stumble upon a new scene and be like, what the fuck is this? Like, the first time I heard Memphis rap music, which sounds so foreign to a lot of other styles of rap music, it was really like, wow, what is this? I have so much to learn. They have their own scene with their own set of rules and themes and sounds that they play with and um there are still a few places that have that like i think in the bay area you still have a lot of artists who are beholden to their own sound that isn't influenced by what's happening on the outside of their region places like in michigan they have some rap music that is very unique to where they're from and I would love to see that keep, you know, happening as much as possible. Maybe maybe we'll come to a point where kids feel like 
all this sounding like the same and like playlist shit is whack and they'll go back towards being as you know different and as unique as possible and pushing that but we'll see yeah because it definitely it happened in hardcore too like it's 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 amazing to watch you know the idea like one point you had like cleveland hardcore and it had a sound versus new york hardcore which had a sound right and now yeah like you're saying it's just like everyone wants to sound like someone else it's funny i sent some friends of mine some like classic toronto rap records and they're like oh this is this isn't good and i'm like no that's just how people rap back then yeah like it was a a different kind of flow yeah i mean man it's it's really interesting um when like something comes out and it totally just erases what came before it not like now i guess i bet there's a lot of people out there who think Drake is where Toronto rap started. So anything prior to that sounds like, oh, this must be from the 80s or some shit, yeah. you know? Yeah. It probably sounds like, like, like fucking Grandmaster Flash to them or something. But in actuality, these were the artists that Drake was looking up to, you know what I mean? And I, and I think it's, it's, it's important to tell those stories about regions that have a specific sound. You know, it's definitely true where I'm from. Houston has such a unique sound of rap music, thanks to Screw and to many other people. And I think Houston rappers, no matter how different our styles are, we always make a nod back to that in some way, Mm -hmm. whether it's through me doing, you know, chopped up tapes with like OG Ron C or like, you know, DJ Candlestick. I'm I'm always going to find a way tie it back to the origins of Houston rap music because that's what inspired me and I think it can still inspire many people to be great and be creative well like yeah like I guess having Bun B on the record must feel like kind of a full circle moment then like here you are having you know the legend open up your record with you honestly I would like to do that more like I would like to keep reaching back to you know OG artists for features on on my albums because I feel like it's important to pay homage to them show some fucking respect to them and let people know where I come from yeah no it it, and it feels like that's I don't know something we're moving away from like the idea of like you know, old music is for old people is kind of seems like it's becoming the mantra now at least that's what I'm finding with my kids how old are your kids? Uh, 11 and then eight and and five. So the 11 year old is really coming into music now. Like we listened to your record and he loved it. You know, like that's, he's kind of finding his own tastes in music, but it's amazing how certain things are just like, oh dad, that's no way. Come on, turn it off. Like <laughs> they are not listening to hardcore. They're not. Wow. It's not, they're not, they don't have the angst yet. Give them a few years. Honestly, hardcore is perfect for 15 year olds. That was when it all clicked for, for me. You know what I mean? That was the first point in my life where I was like, finally pissed off, you know? I know, but they'll probably just get in the corn or they'll get into something that I just have no reference point with. And that's going to be their way. Like that's that's you know you always have to find as much as you go to your parents for musical. I think actually you know what this is interesting to talk about because I think you know on the first time we talked you talked about growing up in this house full of all these different types of records you know and how how inf- that informs who you are right and like you know, my kids are growing up in a house full of records but they don't need to go to 
the records anymore. Like kids don't need to go to their parents' records to find music. They have all that themselves. Yeah. I'm, I mean, nowadays you could just pass the kid your like hard drive and be like, Hey man, here is the history of punk. <laughs> well, they no, they wouldn't even want that. They would just be like, no, I'm just going to be on Spotify or I'm going to be on YouTube finding songs myself or finding music myself. Like it feels like, you don't like there's no more gatekeepers anymore, yeah. even on the home level. Like your parents are no longer your musical gatekeeper. I think getting on YouTube to find music is a great place because the comments offer a lot of history. There are many mm -hmm. times where I look up an old song and I find comments of people being like, yo, we used to play this song during my like graduation. I graduated in this year and I'm and I'm from this town in you know Jersey. And then it starts a thread of like someone being like, oh well that label that made this was actually out in Jersey and I used to know the guy. And you through digging through those comments, you'll find the type of history that you would normally get from a record store clerk or from your parents or from a um blog or from the media back when they actually covered music you know what i mean yeah yeah you know and it's also like when you always have like occasionally like artists actually in the comments of this yes. like bootleg video totally i, I love that <laughs> they're like yeah i was in this band blah 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 we all went to this school so and so got mad at my girlfriend so i got kicked out of the band <laughs> they're like airing it all out in the, in the youtube comments you know what I've been uh, thinking about recently? What's that? I grew up loving punk music, obviously, but I never really made it. You know, mm -hmm. I played in bands a little bit for fun, but I never really tried to really pursue it. We had Donatello. Yeah, but like, but like I said, none of them were none of them were on the level of like the Fat Tony music, where I'm where I'm yeah. like actually trying to like go <laughs> go out and play. What where you're actually doing it? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, no, totally different. And I was thinking, why is that? You know, why haven't I tried my hand at that? And after after thinking about it, I've kind of come to the conclusion that making punk rock music was never meant for me. The music that I make, this is how I'm meant to express myself. And I can get a lot of influence and, you know, get a lot of ideas that are rooted in punk music and punk culture. But I don't think making that kind of music would ever come across as my true sound. And I'm cool with that. You know, prior prior to this moment, I kind of had in the back of my mind that, oh, you know, maybe I'll start a band with this person or do whatever. And but. Now, in my ripe old age of uh, 32, I can proudly say that punk rock music is not for my hands and mouth. What I make now is the music I'm meant to do. Really? I, you don't think? Like, that's the whole ethos of punk is that everyone can and should do it. I don't know, man. I don't I don't I don't think so. Not for me. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. The times that I have, like, like, like I was looking back as some like punk songs that I made over the years recently. And just some of them felt like, man, this is kind of flat, bro. This ain't it. This ain't it. <laughs> well, that, that could be something you come to at 40, you know, they yeah, need, who knows? They need who knows? Maybe I'll turn 40. <laughs> I'll start feeling like I'm 15 and I'm mad again. And I'll start yelling. We'll see. Yeah, no, that's that's what I, I definitely uh, find myself yelling a lot more these days because it's, you know, I don't want to yell at home. So I have to I have to yell somewhere.
What are you doing? Are, are you, are you make, making music right now or what? Uh, fucked up. Uh, you know, we're kind of like doing stuff a little bit in the background and I'm, I'm kind of like talking to, um, you know, just like friends about, you know, different COVID kind of projects we can do. But yeah, I feel, I feel very much like you, like you're saying with punk rock, like I, I can't really do anything else. Like I love all different types of music, you know, yeah. but I, I don't really feel like that's my voice. Like my voice is this that I'm doing and it's, it's, you know, it really doesn't lend itself to, to popping up in different places necessarily. So yeah, I kind of, I'm kind of content just doing this one thing. I feel that, man. I think that it's interesting to like reach that level, you know, I, and I, and I think part of, part of this thought that I'm having, is just coming with this progress that I'm making as a writer and as an artist where I feel like I'm, I'm not just finding my, overall voice but i'm finding the voice that i want for this period of my life you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah no definitely it's it's i guess it comes with the artistic fulfillment you know this idea that you're like well I've, I've, i'm doing what I, I should be doing so i'm i'm okay with it yeah yeah man the, i i just want to challenge myself you know and i and i feel like part of me feels like making rock music or even making certain styles of rap music that I've done in the past feels like I'm backtracking and I'm at a point where I want to only be moving forward and challenge and challenging myself to work harder and, and be a better writer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was this something that, you know, you had wanted to try before this, like, had you been kind of like thinking like, I want to try and do more storytelling. Cause there is such a tradition of, you know, storytelling, approaches to songwriting in in rap music and and once again music in general like is this something you've you've toyed with and just didn't feel comfortable trying till now definitely you know like i've done bits and pieces of it throughout my career many of my songs have you know storytelling elements to them or or just full-blown stories but i think in recent years it's been heavily on my mind like this album here, me and Golden and I talked about making this album for like two or three years. We would talk about the concepts of what we want to do. Like we talk about, you know, wouldn't it be cool to have a song with like a 60s French pop influence? Wouldn't it be cool to have a song that sounds a little more European, quote unquote? Wouldn't it be cool to make a story about a gambler or about a t-shirt like Jeremy Bixby, you know, we would just talk about these little ideas for like years. And when we actually got together to make this record, we had so much deja vu. There were so many moments where an idea would come back to us naturally. And it would just hit me like, wow, I remember being in my kitchen talking to you about this just two years ago. So I think that this is something that was definitely on on my mind, but it wasn't until this album that I could fully execute it. I think mainly because working with um, Goldeneye, we were very in sync with my with with these motivations. Right? It mm -hmm. it isn't like with another producer that I work with, where I'm telling them something and they're like, "Oh, that sounds like a good idea for you to try. Try it out and then show me what what you got." That wasn't the case with this album. I'm telling Goldeneye an idea and he's like, that sounds like a great idea for us to try. Let's both work at this. Let's both write on this. Let's both try to flesh out this 
this idea rather than leaving me to my own devices. And I Mm -hmm. think that I'm the type of writer and type of performer that works best when I have someone to edit me and to help direct me. You know what I mean? I I need a producer that's going to be hands-on. Like, I need the kind of producer who wants to go through every line of lyrics that I've written. You know what I mean? And and I think not everybody works that way because I think in rap music, there's such an emphasis on collaboration that you have people who work kind of as a factory. They just send out a pack of beats. They just want a rapper to put a bunch of lyrics on them. And if they sound good, then it's passable and they put it out. Whereas the way that I want to work is I want you to break apart everything that I've written. Is every word that I'm using helpful towards the overall story? Am I wasting any moments here? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I need that direction to be good and it always brings the best out of me because I feel like when I feel like I have something to prove and I have a goal to meet as a writer, I push for that. But if there is no goal and the session is kind of loose, it's easy for my mind to wander and just go from place to place and get off topic a little too much. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that this is something that I have wanted to do, storytelling, but it wasn't until this moment of making Exotica that I could execute it the way I always dreamed of. It, it's also like you're like you're saying you need the edit. I think group structure in music, like group structure in any art form, like you look at film, like how many people come together to make a film, you know, like I guess visual arts, like painting and things are a little bit different and dance is a little bit different in some cases, but like the group structure for creative process is is key because everyone needs an editor. I, I know I would not be able to function as a solo artist at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that especially if you have the right group because the wrong group could fuck it up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Luckily, I tend to work with people who are patient. You know what I mean? Which I think is a big part of this. Like we, so we basically spent a week writing the album lyrics. Then we spent two weeks recording the vocals. And then we pretty much spent the first six months of the pandemic mixing the record, which means that we're changing some of the beats. I recorded some more stuff to like punch it in. Like we like really took our time to flesh it out. And and I think if it wasn't for the six months of like quarantine that we had to really dial it in, this album wouldn't be what it is now. A, a few of the songs totally changed from the original recording. Like we changed the key of one song and had to re-record the chorus. We completely changed the beats, I think, on three of the songs. And when when I listen back to what we had before that we felt really, really good about, I'm like, wow, this sounds incomplete. And if we didn't have quarantine and maybe thought, oh, we're just going to put out the record as soon as possible, which was kind of what we were feeling at first, to be honest, I think we would have fucked ourselves. So it's a... It's really a, bl- a blessing that we had the time to take for this record. 
Are you able to like kind of sit back now and relax or you're already kind of working on the next thing? I'm definitely chilling because I put out three records this year. I put out yeah. <laughs> I put out this album, Exotica. I put out a live album called Live and No Audience that's basically like a greatest hits pre-Exotica. I put that out this summer. And I put out a, uh, a, a collaborative album with this producer, Tay Dex, earlier this year called Wake Up. So I kind of feel like I'm going to chill. I want to sit back and watch the world because there's so much going on right now. I want to I want to observe the world and just feel out what is going on before I want to write what's going to come next. You know, in 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 my head, I'm planning to write another album like a year from now. So we will see. It's it's a. It's a kind of like one of the other unfortunate things, I guess, of the democratization of music that's kind of happened with streaming is that when you do put out a lot of stuff, you know, it's hard for people to know, like, no, this is the one that you got to focus in on. Like, you know, I've, I've fucked up some of the same thing where we're putting out, you know, live records or we'll do like, you know, a mixtape. And it's just like, these are all just releases. Whereas in different times, you could be like, no, no, this is all, this is all one thing, but this is the big thing. This is the thing yeah. that I worked on. And, and I'm trying to work around that by having very strong messaging attached to this new album, Exotica. This yeah. is the album that, that you will see me post about. This is the album that you will read in my bio on my social media accounts. This, this, this is the album that you're going to hear when I do a live stream concert. My concerts right now, I'm playing this new album from front to back the whole album and i'm only playing this album just to drive home the idea that this is where i want y'all to focus on yeah, it's such an amazing record like it deserves that like i think that's the that's like the thing is that like when you go to a record store and you see it on vinyl it it's almost different than when you're like looking at it on a stream because like the packaging on this thing like looking at the pictures of it looks incredible yeah i mean we worked hard on all that the back photos I took them in uh, Mexico earlier this year. I got a great artist to do the cover. Um, you know, every everything is tied is tied together. There are there are symbols and icons and themes that are present from the packaging of this record to the music videos to the music itself. And I think that this is the type of album that only gets better with time you know the more you listen to this album the more you are going to discover all the nuances and the details that we put into it which is another reason why i want to hold off on putting out anything else i want to let this album and the other work i put out this uh year just like let it breathe and um who knows maybe a year from now we'll be able to play some real shows again and i can give this album the kind of tour that it deserves yeah, would you want to do something like stage-wise? Because I've, I've, you know, you've obviously done some incredible stuff over the streaming thing at this point, like you know, video streaming thing. Would you want to do some sort of like big production live thing for this album? Absolutely. I actually shot a concert out in the desert recently, and I'm going to premiere it on December seventeenth. I'm actually selling tickets for it. It's coming out through this streaming platform called Sessions. And I've done one outdoor show in front of a socially distanced audience. I did one last month in Austin, Texas. 
And both of those shows feature a brand new set. I have new props on stage I've never used before. There's a beautiful painting of the album cover that's on an easel that's that's on stage throughout the concert. I have a different style of dress for this performance. You know, I'm I am doing everything from my live show to my messaging to the music itself to really drive home the fact that we're in a new era of Fat Tony music. Have you been in touch with the Ergs yet? Because it turns out they are fans of yours now. And I, I think that the two of you have to come together in some way. You know what? I was thinking about them because I, I was going through my records and I found an old Erg 7-inch. And I was thinking like, man, I wonder what those guys are, are up to. I saw Mikey Erg a few times last year because, you know, me and Mikey Erg put out records with uh, Joe's label, Don Giovanni. And... I played Bun B's birthday party in Austin, Texas last year, and I brought Mikey Erg and I brought Joe, and they had a fucking fantastic time. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> Ask him about it sometime. But um, yeah, I would love to catch up with them, and, and I would love to hear what uh, music that they're doing now. I, I, I did watch Mikey Erg do a IG Live set earlier this year. But, man, it's been a minute since I talked to them. I got to reach reach out to Mikey Erg, man. Thanks for reminding me. Oh, we- and, man, I got to say, it is really great being on your podcast because last time I got such a great response. But, <laughs> I mean, I think you have a lot of listeners who are just curious about the people that you bring on, even if they haven't heard of them before. And um, it's just great to have a platform like this, honestly. Oh, no, dude, I, I appreciate you coming back on because, like, you know, obviously – I've been a fan for a, a while and stuff. And I think, yeah, like I just, I just enjoy like the audience that I find that the show has are just people that like music, you know? And it's, I was going to ask, have you ever had Mike Park on this show? Oh no, I want to, I want him. Cause like, got to. cause like that, like, you know, uh, do you ever hear that? Like, I guess like legend that, um, link 80 paid to be on the label. Yes. I've always wondered if that's true or not. I've I've been listening to a lot of his podcast interviews over quarantine because mm-hmm. I didn't really know a lot about ska punk history, and he really breaks it down in a way I've, I've never heard anybody break it down before. Not not just like the origins of it, but he also talks about what happened when major labels got involved and kind of the ska boom of the of the late 90s yeah and talks about how you know basically starting out they would just do you know a uh consignment deal with all these labels and that's how asian man got started and then asian man made this sampler cd and every band on it got signed it had like fucking slapstick and like fucking sublime and and less than jake and real big fish and all these scott punk bands that became big mm-hmm. and then he talks about after that boom there were all these copycat scott punk bands who were playing like a very bastardized version of scott he like talks a lot about how you can tell a lot of the fake scott punk bands from the 90s because they could not play reggae and how a lot of the original ska bands understood the mechanics of reggae music in a way a lot of the rock drummers and stuff didn't. Mm-hmm. And how that 
sound kind of became popular. The fake ska punk sound became popular and then dwarfed the real shit and it just became corny. And uh, I, I don't know. Oh, that there's, there's, this, yeah. there's like a YouTube channel called the uh, Ska Tune Network. Have you seen it? I've No, no. I got to check that out. It's this. It's it's this young black dude. I think he's from the Midwest, and he does all these ska punk covers. Like you can pay him through his Patreon to make a ska version of any type of song. Oh, that's awesome! And and he's like built up like a network where he's you know he's like interviewed Mike Park and all these ska legends. It's really interesting to like see this like ska music uh, little revival that's happening for like Zoomers right now. Yeah, no, I, I I remember I interviewed Grimes like on my when I had my Much Music show years mm-hmm. ago, and uh, I was like, yeah, you know, you grew up in the punk scene, and she stopped me and like corrected me. She's like, I grew up in the ska punk scene, and I was like, whoa, I've never heard someone make that distinction. It really feels like there's like a whole separate thing of like yeah, like a strictly ska punk revival that's kind of happening. You know, like you're saying with Zoomers now, where it's like it's come back in like a big way, and uh i'm waiting to see like the next wave of bands because there doesn't really seem to be the bands yet but like it was wild like i had uh um talib quali was on yeah and I heard he that talked episode. about how he when he was talking about how much he loved operation ivy yeah <laughs> i told jesse michaels that and he's like dude you just made my fucking life <laughs> he's like <laughs> He's like, I can't believe that. At oh, that's all. another and thing I, with uh, Mike Park. He's always bigging up Jesse Michaels. He's always bigging him up in every interview. He he must be like kind of like it's weird because he he must be like a, a a weird sort of stabilizing factor for a lot of these guys or something or because like I, Sam McFeeders was on the podcast from Born Against and he's talking about how he's good friends with Jesse Michaels and wow. like. And how much, yeah, Jesse Michaels. It, the Jesse Michaels episode, I don't know if you heard his turn out of punk one, but it's No, fucking, I haven't. It's awesome. <laughs> it is so, it is so awesome. He's just like, he talks about going to Pittsburgh. Like he moved to Pittsburgh and played in all these Pittsburgh metal and punk bands as a drummer before Op Ivy. Wow, what? Yeah, like he knew Spike from Me First and the Gimme Gimmies from when they lived in Pittsburgh together. Like, he's like, oh, yeah, I knew Spike from punk shows back then and, like, all this stuff. Like, it's just so weird because, like, you know, I associate him so much with Berkeley. Yeah. I'm talking about all these random-ass Pittsburgh bands, like, first-wave Pittsburgh hardcore bands and stuff. He also had a band with the dudes from Neurosis. Oh, what? Yeah, it's a, it's an awesome – he's, like, he's one of those guys that I would just like, – I'm such a fan of, like, you know, like – he's just such a touchstone person. Like so many people come on the podcast and talk about that band being the band for him. Man. I don't know if I mentioned this on my, uh, part one and I'm still recording this by the way, just in case, but I don't know if I mentioned this, but I just reminded myself that ska punk was big when I was in high school. And, that's one of the reasons why I didn't have a lot of friends that shared my interest in hardcore or in pop punk because they were all into ska punk. And when I was booking shows, every show I ever booked 
had a ska punk band or a reggae band on it. You did say that. Yeah, because that was the thing. And they were only into that. And I think at the time, I thought of ska punk as being cool, but I just wasn't, I like couldn't, like I like I didn't have any ska CDs. I, I had like some Asian man samplers and, you know, shit like that. Yeah, but yeah. I just couldn't ever- really delve into it. But that Have was you ever read thing. Daniel Steele's book about her son dying that she did? No. What is that? Like the like the you know the dude from Link 80s, Daniel Steele's son? No. Yeah. Like that's Daniel Steele paid for that record to come out, uh, according to legend. Oh wow. And so after he killed himself, or I think he did he die of an overdose or did he kill himself? I can't remember. Was, you know, I, tragically he passed away, right? And like yeah. she wrote she wrote a book afterwards that like places a lot of the blame on the ska punk scene for his death. Re- blame how? Like, like I, I had never read it, but that's what someone told me who read it, that they were like, yeah, like she really like lays it in that the ska punk scene is the reason he's dead. Was oh, the like, ska punk scene toxic or? I guess, I guess she, she must just be like the punk scene in general and, and drugs because uh, obviously, you know, that's a thing, especially, yeah. Especially like leftover crack kind of era on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, like one of those I'm dudes reading just about him away. now. One of the dudes from leftover crack passed away last week. I saw that. One of like a long time member too. Yeah. Like one of the main dudes. We played with him last summer in like not last summer, you know, the, the summer when still stuff was still happening. Yeah. Uh, at the bouncing souls 30th anniversary party. Oh, wow. And that dude Sturgeon was like smoking crack or something in the bathroom. It was fucking gnarly. Red, they're they're so old too. Yeah, there's like one dude that dude Brad Logan that's in the band. He's like sober, and I think he's in the band to kind of be the sober kind of like influence. Yeah, but that dude Sturgeon is like living the gimmick. That's so crazy. That's so crazy. Leftover crack. That's a band I never got into. But like some of my more punk friends really like them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Just this like wasn't my thing. The only, I actually saw them play at a festival in uh, Austin at Fun 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 Fest, and I was watching Trash Talk, and then Leftover Crack was supposed to play on the <laughs> on the next stage, and then Lee made a joke about them, and then Leftover Crack started playing. <laughs> it was just kind of like. I don't know. I just see it as kind of like silly, but I don't, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's just not my thing. The, no, just, no, the, I, the, I like, like uh, crust punk thing just, just isn't for me. No, I like, I get, I get, have you watched Decline of Western Civilization part three? Of of course. And I loved your interview with her and I thought it was so interesting how not Hollywood she was, which is what I expected. She was mm-hmm. very much like, I'm not Hollywood. I'm like a street punk. My like boyfriends are kind of punk. <laughs> I'm like, <Yeah>. wow. <laughs> You're not playing. She's definitely, no. she like definitely reminded me of an LA person because I think LA people are so into rock music it made sense that she comes from like 60s rock moving into punk know what i mean and just yeah and just the la stuff is like so for like lack of a better term street and like hard you feel me yeah and yeah. i feel like i've i found out about those bands from watching the first movie that's that's how i first heard of circle jerks and fear and germs and 
Black Flag and all those bands. That's the first time I ever heard them. Just I like bought the VHS off of eBay because I had heard that it was a really important movie. And um, prior to that, I learned about punk from like the East Coast stuff. Like I heard about the fucking Ramones first. I heard about, you know, Talking Heads, Blondie, television. And all that stuff is so different from the L.A. stuff. It feels like it's a different genre. Yeah. No, like like Keith Morris, when he was on the show, he was like, like, you know, people talk about New York punk. It's like, what are those bands were punk? He's like the Dead Boys were from Cleveland and the Ramones. But like every other band, like it doesn't sound like punk rock. And it's true. Like when you think of punk rock, like we all think of like L.A. stuff, like people moshing. Yeah. Like people like like you know in new york there were still kind of like hipster type people going to these these shows early on in la they were all like punks like shaving their heads and and just going wild like i don't know like i've I've come full circle and now like i think punk starts in la yeah yeah i feel that for like our definition of it and i think it's really interesting that she said that she first heard a sex pistols album because i think la people I've always noticed that even with their fashion, they're more in, into the UK punk look. You mm-hmm. know, that like Malcolm McLaren, Vivian Westwood look. You know what I mean? Which, yeah. you know, they say comes from like Richard Hill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's what I think they probably like they all all the New York people looked at the British people as being posers. Like, oh, that's that weird British guy, Malcolm McLaren shit. Yes. and And they were all older too, right? Like they're all like, older kind of arty people or they were not teenagers (laughs) no exactly so like when it gets to la that's when it becomes youth music and becomes like like uh i I had um king king cargo powers on and just him talking about like that early la scene like zolar x and all these kind of like kids like yeah like literal kids going to like rodney's english disco and how that's the foundation of like the early punk scene it's like oh yeah that makes sense it's just like young people of course they thought that british stuff was cooler yeah i um definitely i think especially the older i get i identify with more of the new york people because Mm -hmm. just the kind of way that it's more of a conceptual thing and like more of like a poet thing yeah like people like richard hale and like lou lou reed and stuff like i really identify with their perspectives more so than like the screamers, you know? Yeah, no, I know you're saying like you kind of age into the New York stuff. And it's kind of cool to think of like the New York scene also encompassing that no wave scene. And just like, you know, it's like, it is such a interesting thing, but like, like the visceral punk stuff, it's like, oh yeah, that's the, like you're saying, it's the decline stuff. It's like those bands. What I got out of those bands when I was young is I really liked how funny they were and I liked how much energy they put into their live shows, which really inspired me the first times that I was performing. Because back then, I was all about that. Like, I want to climb on top of speakers and fucking swing the mic around and all kind of shit. <laughs> I remember the last time I ever swung the mic was like a couple years ago. And I fucking swung the mic and it flew off and it hit somebody in the head. And at that moment, I was like, "All right, man, I'm too old for this shit. I'm, 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 I'm done swinging mics." <laughs> yeah, I, I one time swung the mic and it hit Sandy. Oh and I damn! Felt so bad. And so now I definitely, 
I still try and do my Roger Daltrey impression, but I definitely make sure I've got good clearance and that that mic is taped onto the cord. Yeah, see, this was one time <laughs> where I wasn't using my own cable. I was using the venue's cable, and I yeah. know that my cable's dirty because I've swung it many times. But the venue's cable, the fucking mic flew clean off. Um, <laughs> but, man, that's so fucked up. You you, you uh, hit Sandy. That sucks. I actually heard about that happening with, like, the Mars Volta, too. The uh, singer, Cedric, was, like, swinging the mic. It hit Omar and it like knocked him out during a concert. Oh. <laughs> they they had to like stop and like take a break for a few minutes. Yeah, uh, do you ever hear the Cedric episode when he was on? I I think oh yes, and like he was talking about his like early early bands. Yeah, and he was and he said like his biggest thing in life is that he always just wanted to be in an ebullition hardcore band. Yeah, like that's he, so interesting. Their like background. So- because yeah, I would have like, thought that listen to their music, especially their, 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 their like later at the driving music or the Mars, Mars Volta music. I thought they were just like classic rock people. Yeah, no, he's like 100% like the most DIY hardcore dude. Like, I think that's the thing that probably broke up the band. Like, it's almost like a Nirvana thing. Like, you kind of wonder with Kurt Cobain if, if it was like the idea of making it in a band that he just couldn't deal with on yeah. a certain level. You yeah, know, like you're supposed to so. not be successful in, in punk. It's so funny reading back on that old stuff. Like I rem- I remember there's like a Steve Albini article about selling out and Ben uh, Weasel wrote an article about selling out for maximum rock and roll. And when I see those things now, I'm like, wow, kids don't even think like this anymore. <laughs> no. No, it's like it's such like a like an unbelievably unheard of concept now. Like, yes. you know, like just like what? Like not signing to a label that's offering to pay you to do this thing that you're going to be suffering to do anyway. Uh, like, it's just like an it, it, you kind of look back on this stuff and you're like, oh, it's like an unbelievable amount of privilege that someone has to be yes. like, you know what? You you don't sign that label. Just just don't don't do this because you, you'd have to be like unbelievably fucking set to, to just dismiss it outright. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> not, it's not for me. I, I mean, I have my own ideas. Selling out to me has more so to do with my work, not my business. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and also like, you know, the reality is like you could be on like, Huggies, Pamper, Doritos, Pepsi records right now. And your record would still be right beside Fugazi's. Like it's all the same now. Like it's, (laughs) you know, like we're really, a corporation is getting a piece of it every time you enjoy culture now, no matter what. Sad, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it's sad, but it's also like, um, do you remember that guy twin shadow? Yeah, of course. Musician. I, I, I interviewed him one time and he was like, yeah, it's sad, but it's like, it's just more like musicians just have to set, accept the reality that everyone has to deal with in their day-to-day life. Now, like musicians aren't insulated anymore by record sales. Yeah. You know, like now everyone just has to, has to deal with it. And also it just seems like punk back then was so much more time consuming that it felt very fulfilling putting your efforts to all these DIY pursuits. Like listening to the Mike Park interviews and he's talking about 
how he was writing music, running his label, booking tours, and doing all this shit at once. He had a full day every day where he was calling people to get stuff done and everybody was happy to do it, right? Where yeah. now I think in music, we communicate with way fewer people. You know, there are less venues, there are less promoters, record label staffs are smaller. And I think with all that free time of less human interaction, we're kind of falling upon like, oh, well, we need to um, be as secure as possible because I don't have a guy that I can just call up to book a show if I stay DIY. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Like it, it's also as everything's kind of consolidating and everything's getting bigger, like it, it doesn't really leave a lot of room or maybe it ultimately is going to leave a lot of room for a new thing to kind of grow in its place. You know, yeah. like, like you were saying earlier, like as people are going to get back to regional things, like maybe people are going to get back to like an idea of trying to do things outside of, of the mainstream system. Yeah, man. Dude. I, uh, yeah. I'm sorry to keep rambling. On no, this. no, this, this, fun, this, is, this, this, this is great. This is really great. Um, and I, I want yeah, to and- ask you one one more thing. I love your episode with Ceremony. Oh, with Anthony. And I love that band. They're they're a band that I never listened to their records really, but I love going to see them live. They're they're always good. Yeah. And I love how much they change with every album, and they're not afraid to do it, even if it's not what part of their audience wants. Yeah. Yeah. And that guy that you interviewed, I think he's the guitar player. Yeah, Anthony. I, and his dad managed China. Oh yes, yes. I saw him. I I saw them a few years ago on a day where I was feeling really uh bummed out. And I went to their show and it was great and it made me really happy. And I remember he had a huge Prince tattoo on his chest. And Prince is my favorite artist. And watching him, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go get that Prince tattoo that I've been thinking about getting because this guy is fucking crazy. He has like Prince's face on on his like left breast or something. It's crazy. (laughs) And then he has two. He has a symbol somewhere else, too. I'm like, wow, this guy's killing it. Yeah, no, he is like he's obsessed with Prince. I think he also has like a ridiculous Prince record collection. Man, I got to talk one time. I got one thing I want to find out that I didn't even ask Bob Mould about is apparently Bob Mould did a record uh, with Prince. Really? Yeah, apparently there's like some Bob Mold record in the vaults or something. Inch did did he talk about that or no? No, no, I've never, I never like. There's so much shit. Like that's the thing is like I, I look back at some of these interviews and I'm like, how the fuck did I not ask this? But there's just like so much shit you want to get in at once. It's like verbal diarrhea. I'm just like, Bleh. yeah, I'm I'm like googling it now. Apparently he like wrote this thing on his Facebook page about Prince, like like a uh, eulogy for him. Yeah, I'm gonna check it out. All right, man, I've got a lot to <laughs> to dig into today. <laughs> well, let's catch, let's stay in touch. We don't have to record a podcast. Let's just like anytime you want to FaceTime and or, or chat. Let me... Definitely. Well, Fat Tony, whenever you want to come back for a part three, you know that the door is always open here. This has been awesome getting to talk to you again. Thank you for having me, man. Like I said before, this is the only fucking podcast that matters, and the only actual punk podcast in the world. Thank you, Vat Tony, for coming back on the show. And uh, thank you for the kind words, man. 
way to put over this podcast on the way out. I, I really appreciate that. And Fat Tony will be back for part three or... Uh, it'd be great to get him on on like one of those footnote super shows too, just to to hang out and chat because we we chatted for a lot longer <laughs> after I hit stop. We must have chatted for it was like God, we spent the whole day together that day just talking over Zoom and and whatnot. So uh, yeah, Fat Tony will be back in the future and check out Exotica once again on Car Park Records. Speaking of checking things out, uh, have you checked out Punk as Fuck yet? Punk as Fuck is a show that I did with my friends at Flood Magazine. A couple years ago, and it finally has hit the 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 internet waves. I guess uh, there's episodes with myself and Bleached, episodes with uh, Moby, an episode taking Don Bowles with Steve Albini to Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. You got to watch that one. That was absolutely essential. And speaking of essential, in the latest one that's just come out, I go with Jonah Ray, friend of the show, to check out Donut Fiend in Los Angeles and stuff our faces with vegan themed. Oh, no, not vegan-themed, punk-themed vegan donuts. Uh, and they are they were delicious. I really wish I had some right now. Uh, so definitely check out that Punk is Fuck over there on the Flood YouTube channel. And uh, you can check it on my socials as well. And they're super fun. And it was a joy to get to make. And I'm so glad you could finally see them because I have been talking about them forever. And now you can finally see them out on the on the web. So check those things out. And one, and the final thing you got to check out is coming out later on this week here on the podcast, a legend, a genuine fucking legend. Next episode, Steve Diggle of the band, the Buzzcocks of FOD, not to be confused with the other FOD, uh, is one of the greatest of all time. You know, Buzzcocks, dare I say one of the greatest bands of all time. And this is a fantastic conversation. We talk about everything from forming the Buzzcocks to, to meeting Malcolm McLaren to touring with Nirvana. It is a, it's a good one. It is a good one. And that is coming out later this week on the show. Remember as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves um, in any way we can right now. Uh, we need to come together, basically. Sign up. Donate money if you can. Sign petitions. Show up. Be involved. Just just fuck fascism. Smash fascism. Like, why would you ever support an ideology based entirely around oppression and, and justifying oppression and suppression? And it's fascism. You know, it, 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 the, it it's all in the name right there. You know, just... It's terrible. It's fascism. So we need to smash it. And now's the time to get involved. Do whatever you can. Uh, also, go there and make your own culture. Anyone can do this shit. It, it's it's real easy. Start a zine, start a band, start a podcast. Just doing something creative will help uh, your mental health. You know, you don't have to put it out there. And if you do put it out there, who knows what happens, you know? So just, just try and do that. Uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. Like, I don't need this shit anymore. Take it. Take it. It's just, you know, literally dead weight. It's literally dead weight at that point, you know? So why not just sign that organ donor card? And that's it. Uh, wear a mask. Stay safe. And uh, uh, we'll get through this shit. We'll get through this shit. Uh, no, I will see you on the next episode. Whew. We got a lot of good ones coming up. So don't. Don't worry, this thing is not letting up anytime soon. The, this, the Turnout Punk freight train is going to keep rolling 
because I just love chatting with people about shit to keep my mind off things in this world that are important. Uh, and so hopefully this thing's a little bit of an escape for yourself too. So thank you for listening. Love you. See you next episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.